0: For more than 30 years, Ted Williams has been hailed as one of the foremost nature writers in the United States, with articles and columns that appear in a wide range of national magazines, from fly rod and reel to Audubon. His eloquent advocacy for a host of environmental and wildlife conservation issues has won him many a prestigious award. The National Wildlife Federation presented him with their Conservation Achievement Award. His conservation writing won him the Federal Wildlife Officers Association Award. The Outdoor Writers Association of America recognized him with their highest honor, the Jade of Chiefs. And the Coastal Conservation Association of New York named him Conservationist of the Year. And now he's out with his latest book. Earth Almanac. And he's here to join us to talk about it and his work throughout his life. Earth Almanac is William's beautifully crafted collection of 238 short essays detailing a year of nature's wild and fleeting moments. He finds hope in the small miracles that abound in nature. And he's here to talk to us about it today. Welcome, Ted. It's such a pleasure to have you on our show. It's good to be with you. I'd love to begin with having you read the preface to your book, because you've been working for a long time, a lifetime, as an environmental investigative reporter and writer across a variety of different mediums and and sectors. But I'd love to have you share with us your preface and read that aloud, simply because I think it shares um, a moment that I think we could all use of reflection and keeping hope alive.
1: Sure. Okay. Okay. Earth Almanac, originally entitled Earth Calendar, is a seasonal natural history column that I've had the great pleasure of writing for Audubon Magazine since October 1997, when it was conceived and assigned to me by my then-editor, Roger Cohn. For an investigative environmental reporter who mucks around in political dirt during most of every working day there can be no tonic more refreshing than climbing out of the trenches and for one fleeting week celebrating the beauty and magic of nature writing about experiences a field is a way of reliving them i get to do it all twice i am convinced that these regular retreats into what is pure and clean and right with the world have made me a better environmental reporter because they have reminded me of what's at stake and what i'm fighting for they also have reminded me that the crusade for healthy native ecosystems is far from hopeless and that good news abounds as you read this book pay careful attention to the many species that have recovered from desperate trouble or that continue to do well, or at least hold their own in a world in which the general assumption is that everything has gone to hell. Even now, as I reread the manuscript, I find the good news remarkable and uplifting. These victories are more than isolated events. They result from new ways of thinking and new ways of responding to wildlife emergencies. Together, they prove that humans can undo the damage they've done and restore the planet. What's more, they indicate that humans can yet prove themselves to be a successful species by living in harmony with their own habitat and with other life forms. Maybe if we can save gray whales and striped bass, we can save ourselves. I like to think that Earth Almanac has helped uh, helped bring a balance to all my writing, and I hope it has provided and will continue to provide sustenance to a campaign I have been part of since 1970, and I now believe we will win. Like all magazine writers, I am frequently obliged to undertake the painful task of copy editing, especially when trying to fit my words into two-page, lavishly illustrated, earth almanac spread. In all cases where deletions were dictated by space limitations, I have restored the original text. Therefore, the essays in this volume contain considerable material that is previously unpublished. I've done my best to be scientific and precise, but at the same time, try to avoid clinical dissection, dryness, and above all, scientific jargon. Having worked with and for biologists, I understand the risk of anthropomorphizing wildlife, and I have avoided it where possible but sometimes it is not possible, a fact biologists tend to forget. Humans and wildlife, particularly our fellow mammals, are not dissimilar as we like to suppose. We share many characteristics. The urge to play, for example. Biologists have proclaimed that playfulness in wild canids, ungulates, bears, cats, mustelids, and rodents is merely practice for serious adult activities such as battles over territory or social hierarchy. This may be true, but from my observations in the wild, I have no doubt that sometimes playfulness is just playfulness. That is, wild animals like humans play to have fun. Consider the essay, Winter Games, in which I report the following. An otter will pluck a pebble from the bottom of a river or lake, surface with it, drop it, swim under it, catch it on its forehead, slip and turn back to the surface with the pebble still in place, then start the game anew. Now, what useful activity could otters possibly be practicing with this game? Swimming agility? I doubt it. They need this exercise not as much as professional baseball players need t-ball sets. Otters, like lots of other creatures, including us, enjoy sport. To deny this fact is not only unscientific, it diminishes wildlife and the wonder of nature. I've strenuously avoided anything more than quick references to human-caused threats faced by the species I write about. From the outset, I was convinced that this column wasn't a place for calls to action. A straight diet of exposés and activism is a prescription for burnout. I wanted the Earth Almanac column to be a refuge, not just for myself, but for my readers. I've always seen these essays as a chance to take a breather, chill out, count inventory, and especially enjoy.
0: You can't really say it better than what you just said. And what you wrote, I think that's really why I wanted to have you share that with the audience. It's so profound uh, and and spellbinding, really. I find it anyway. I'm listening to every word and very touched by it. And uh, you know, this idea of play as well—that that play is important. Why do you think play is important, even just to the human race?
1: Well, I think it it it's it's a respite, um, and it, it's fun, and and animals. Have fun as as well as humans. I'm sure every dog owner has seen it. Um, the The play is is just that.
0: It's it's play in a lot of lot of cases. Yeah, I think. Uh, do you think the world needs a lot more play at the moment?
1: I, I, I certainly do.
0: <laughs> and hopefully, this uh, this book Earth Almanac will help people. Uh, take that refuge. And uh, I, it's just so well written. As you said, you wanted to get out of kind of the the typical writing for a cause or, you know, the call to action and and just sort of uh, allow people to step away and just find some sanctuary for a moment and, uh, and breathe. I think we need some breathing space. So it sounds as though this book is uh, a moment of breathing, not just for you as a reporter, but for everyone, all of us, to take um, through the through the prose that you've written. Why did you choose the title Earth Almanac, and how is your version different than, say, a traditional almanac?
1: Well, uh, to be honest, I didn't choose it. My editor, Lisa Goslin chose it. Originally it was called Earth Calendar. Uh, I'm not sure what the difference is. Um, um, either way, it was, was fine with me. I, I'm not sure if I mentioned this. Another book that came out um, a few months before this one, also called Earth Almanac by uh, Ken Kiefer. It's a, it's a good book. It's quite different. Uh, I hope that the the little essays short reads will uh, inspire people to get out at the right time of the season and, and uh, not only enjoy nature, but uh, become an activist uh, to protect
0: it. What was your inspiration for writing this book?
1: Uh, celebration. Celebration of nature and a, and kind of a, a review of, of what we have left and what's good and, and uh, what's worth protecting and saving. And recovering. Um, a lot of these species are in process of recovery but haven't recovered yet and if we if we work hard, uh, we'll, we'll have them back in in good numbers.
0: And of the species that are out there, what are the ones that you feel are in most dire straits that need to really need full campaigns to help protect them?
1: Well, I think some of the migratory birds are, are in big trouble. We're losing habitat in in uh, the wintering grounds in South America. That's certainly probably. Biggest priority, I think, their forest habitat is being destroyed in, in their wintering grounds, and and also some of their summer habitat, their some warm weather habitat in the, in, the, in the north, we're losing that too. Oh, we have infestation of, of um, cowbirds in the east, which are there because we've opened up forests and created roads, and these cowbirds are, are parasitizing nests of, of uh, many species, wood thrushes. Then we have a huge deer overpopulation in the East um, because we've eliminated the obligate predators, which are wolves and cougars. And the deer are destroying their own habitat as well as the habitat of many ground and shrub-nesting birds.
0: And what particular industries do you think that people should be paying attention to the most?
1: Well, I think that some of the, the um greenhouse gas emitters um need to need to be controlled. Uh, big problem with climate change. We're losing um a lot of the ice cover in, in, in the Arctic. Um polar bears are in big trouble. Uh they're starving and dying because they, they uh they don't have the ice to hunt on. Um other species as well,
0: and through the years of your reporting and and writing, what do you think is the most pressing issue for uh, regarding our environment today?
1: Uh, climate change. I think that's a, that's a real threat, and we're we're going to lose species, and we are losing species, and we have to address it. And it's unfortunate that the U.S. is not doing anything about it.
0: How do you stay hopeful in uh, this world of constantly covering this kind of an issue?
1: Well, I think that the older you are, the more you remember how bad it was. And uh, and I, I hope that the central message of the book will be that things are not as bad as they're made out to be. Uh, we're making good progress in restoring a lot of wildlife that... We've lost. I, uh, I wrote the book for city people, too, because it's remarkable how much nature you can find even in cities. Um, a lot of it goes unnoticed because some of it's small, uh, but it's important to look. I'm old enough to remember um, in the 60s and 70s when there was no um, Endangered Species Act, no Clean Water Act, no Clean Air Act, and... Um, no Environmental Policy Act. Um, we were sp- still spraying DDT. I went to work for the Massachusetts Fish and Wildlife Division in um, 1970, and things were pretty grim. Uh, we were still using DDT, and uh, things were not good. we I had not yet seen a bluebird uh, in my mid-20s, and today bluebirds abound. Um, people uh, have been setting up bluebird boxes, um, bluebirds were, were rendered almost endangered by DDT and the invasion of alien uh, starlings and house sparrows, which took over their cavity nesters. So the bluebird boxes, the hole was small enough to exclude starlings. And because of that, uh, house um, uh, other other species uh, can can uh, jenny wrens, for example, and swallows, tree swallows, can use those boxes, and they're rebounding too. When I was uh, working at the Division of Fisheries and Wildlife in in 70s, nobody had seen eagles in Massachusetts. They're breeding now. Um, I, I, we have a camp in a lake in southern New Hampshire. You hardly can go onto it without seeing eagles. When I was a kid, uh, seeing a loon was unheard of. And we, we hear them all night now. So things are not as bad as they're made out to be. And it's important to report the good news about wildlife, too, because uh, environmental groups tend to fundraise by accurately reporting the bad stuff that we need to correct. But the good stuff gets kind of forgotten. And because of that, people burn up burn out, and and feel hopeless. And I hope that, that I can solve some of that with this book.
0: And if you just tuned in, we're speaking with award-winning journalist and lifetime environmental investigative reporter Ted Williams about his new book, Earth Almanac. What do you consider the biggest environmental threats to our planet and particularly our endangered species?
1: It's not just industries. It's just the human population, development, um destruction of inevitable destruction of habitat but uh, one good example is, is black-footed ferrets um, in in the uh, 70s they were declared extinct and um, lo and behold a dog brought one back about 19 in the early 1980s and the Fish and wildlife service and the Wyoming uh, fishing game made a huge effort to to capture the, some of the remaining blackfoot footed Footed ferrets, which were were being uh, hurt by bubonic plague, sylvanic plague, it's called in wildlife, and they they bred them in captivity and release them, and you know they're still very endangered. But we have them back, and and uh, hopefully they'll continue to recover. So these kind of of stories need to be told, and while the the book does not is not a Call to action. Um, I hope that it results in calls calls to action by inspiring people to to get out there and appreciate what we have and see that it's it's worth saving and worth recovering. I mentioned gray whales. Um, gray whales were in desperate trouble, um, and and now they they're fully recovered and, and taken off the endangered species list. Um, Humpback whales were in big trouble, and, and now a big inus, industry is, is whale watching. They're, they've recovered, and you know blue whales are in danger, but they're they're coming back too. Um, so just remember the good news, and 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 push to keep it happening.
0: Of your essays, what would you say are the favorite? Are your favorite?
1: It's it's hard to say, but um, I I think maybe. Um, the, the, the winter bluebirds, uh, they, they've been a big factor in our, our family. We, we feed them mealworms and winterberries in the, in the winter. They, the bluebirds have changed their habits. They, many of them no longer fly south. So we have them all winter, and um, they're special they, because they have recovered. And uh, we, when, when we were younger, there were none.
0: What can you share with us that you know about New Mexico's wildlife?
1: Well, my daughter lived in New Mexico for a long time, and um, uh, we we visited her occasionally, and and um, people uh, really w- were unaware of a lot lot of the good stuff that they have there in New Mexico. It's huge open spaces, roadrunners, for example, even in Albuquerque, in my daughter's backyard. Roadrunners were were hunting and grabbing lizards, and on the fence, a lot of these these birds were just unobserved and, and by the public, and, and really oblivious to to the, to the uh, um, variety of, of wildlife. Bobcats abounded uh, in the nearby hills. Um, raptors and the, the Rio Grande, uh, all kinds of. Uh, sandhill cranes um, um, foxes uh, other wildlife it's, it's, it was a rich environment the, the, the pollution control uh, is, is is coming along um, the Rio Grande is a lot cleaner than it was um, well I think the global warming is is, is is a big issue and we we have to get back in the Paris Accord and and uh, be 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 a mover instead of a a blockade.
0: We're right in the middle of a whole lot of change right now. Let's say we go out on a positive note. How about if you read your essay on the fall?
1: Okay. While not immune to spring-induced giddiness, members of the Williams family are far more afflicted with a previously undescribed malady called fall fever. We feel the first symptoms on the crisp mornings just prior to the autumnal equinox, when morning glories open on the lattice work along the South Garden Wall, when our lake falls silent save for the lapping of waves and the gabbling of northern ducks, when aspens and tamaracks go smoky gold, swamp maples blaze, and the azure sky is one shade richer than at any other time of year. Fall brings the fragrance of wood smoke and leaf smoke. Sweet rotten scent of frost-killed ferns and deer-bitten apples, young grouse from the touch me nots woodcocks fluttering moth-like into bare alder runs at dusk. Wild geese barking as if from tree level, yet so high they look like ribbons of crape tacked across the corners of the crescent moon. As Johnny Mitchell and our friend Tom Rush sing, They've got the urge for going, and they've got the wings to go. Migrations of geese and other waterfowl are noticed by most people, even those generally oblivious to the natural world. But the greatest migrations on Earth pass unseen by all but a few thousand Americans. They happen not with mammals on all world steppes or savannas, or even birds along busy flyways, but with sea creatures underwater along the west and east coast. The August sun is bright and hot with so many summer things left to do. The last thing you want to think about is winter unless that is your Purple Martin uttering musical chirps and raspy twitters these large, loud swallows, hawk, dragonflies and as the days end swirl like coal smoke around trees, rising, settling, finally roosting. Within hours, they'll strike out for Bolivia, Paraguay, and Brazil. You're apt to encounter Purple Martins almost anywhere in the contiguous states. And while they're not as common as they were a century ago, they're recovering in some of the areas of the east thanks to multiple-unit Purple Martin hotels erected by bird lovers. The eastern subspecies has been conditioned to artificial nest sites for centuries, first by the Indians who hung out gourds from them, Now it's almost entirely dependent on nest boxes. Hotels with two dozen or fewer rooms work better than bigger ones. Rooms should be at least six inches on the side, and, and it's important to provide good ventilation and drainage. A coat of white paint will help cool nests by reflecting sunlight. Hotels should be placed in the open and mounted on high metal poles. To discourage house sparrows and starlings, Plug entrance holes until the Martins show up.
0: Why do you think writing with such detail is so important?
1: Well, I think you've got to capture your readers and and, um, inspire them, and you've got to hit all points and and, uh, explain things thoroughly.
0: And that you do, I will have to say, that you do very, very, very well. Uh, I just want to thank you so much for joining us. And if people want to get a hold of you and your book, where can they go?
1: Well, they can Google uh, Earth Almanac, um, Workman Publishing, um, and and Ted Williams, not Ken Kiefer, but by Ken Kiefer's too. Um, It's it's easily available from, from Amazon and other outlets.
0: Fantastic. And do you have a website if people want to reach out to you just as a writer or somebody they want to connect with?
1: No, I don't. But they might, if they're interested in fish, they might want to log on to the Native Fish Coalition on which I serve as national chair. And we have um, a lot of articles that I post on, on native fish conservation. We're only interested in native fish, uh, not necessarily ones you fish for but just native fish as wildlife.
0: And if you just tuned in, we're speaking with author Ted Williams of the new book Earth Almanac. Thank you so much, Ted, for all your work as a reporter through the years and, and all your incredible writing.
1: Well, thanks a lot, and thanks for helping me get the word out.